If you would turn over to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. I mentioned this morning uh, the what we call the Arminian view of Hebrews chapter 6, and that is that when it speaks of it is impossible to renew those to repentance that have fallen away, the Arminian view is that that is speaking of a, of a loss of salvation. And the Arminian view is that you can be saved, you can be given of the Father to the Son, the Son can redeem you, and you can be sealed by the Holy Spirit and yet fall away and, and never be brought back to repentance. You can lose your salvation. That would be the Arminian view. And that's the view that we saw when we looked at the text was actually not in the text. Um, but a number of years ago, I had a friend that, that held that view, and I remember he came very excitedly to me and gave me a CD of his pastor preaching on that passage and said, this is the best exposition of Hebrews 6 that I've ever heard. I think it will get you to change your mind. And I listened to it. It was a great exposition of the passage. It really was. I, I disagreed, obviously, with his conclusions, but... He made a couple of statements that have just stood out to me that I have found are common statements. And he says, basically, in light of Hebrews 6, people that believe you cannot lose your salvation ignore Hebrews 6 because the idea of eternal security is so precious to us. And I was quick to let him know that I don't hold to eternal security because it's precious to me. It is precious to me, and I hope it's precious to you. I hold to eternal security because that's what the Bible teaches. In fact, he made the statement in the sermon that in John chapter 10, verse 28, where we read that none can be removed from the hand of the Father, he said that's really the only passage you have to defend eternal security. And then he made the comment that, okay, we can't... We can't be taken from the grip of the Father or taken from the grip of the Son, but you could certainly jump out of their grip. I thought that was an insane interpretation of the passage. So why do we believe in eternal security? Well, it's a triune work of God that we are saved. It is a work of the Trinity in our salvation. We oftentimes think of salvation in terms of just what Jesus did, but that's not the full and complete picture of salvation and how salvation works. And Ephesians chapter 1, probably more clearly than any other um, passage of Scripture, makes this so abundantly clear, where it describes what takes place and how salvation works for us. So you think about it this, is that it point you received Christ. If you're in Christ, there came a point where you received Christ by faith and you were saved. That's what you experience and that's what every Christian experiences. But what is it that takes place behind the scenes, if you will, for a lack of a better word? What is it that's taking place that we're unaware of, but we just know that one day something changed, something clicked, that we Christ and we professed Christ. Well, gives us that answer. And while we could and have looked at each of these verses individually, it's important to see the flow of argument to see the triune work of God in salvation. So let us hear the word of God beginning in verse 3 of Ephesians. I'm going to read all the way through verse 14. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now you see in this text, it very clearly says that the Father chooses us, that the Son redeems us, and the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to us. You can see what takes place in you see takes place in history and time with the work of Christ, and then you see what takes place in the application of salvation to the person in the sealing of the Holy Spirit. So it has an eternal look, it has a historical look, and then it has a present reality in your life, and it is the work of our triune God working out our salvation. You notice how it begins of introducing to us the Father and how we are blessed. He says that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. This is speaking of how the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so this is a, a passage that is telling us why we should praise the Lord, why the Lord should be blessed, and why it is that we are blessed and how we are blessed in Christ. And that argument begins to unfold in verse 4. After we are told that we have these spiritual blessings from the heavenly places, it says, even as he chose us in him, that is, we have been chosen in Christ, chosen in union with Christ. Now, the word chose is specifically the word elect. This is speaking of God's election. When you hear the Greek word there, you would hear that sound of elect. It's from where we get our word elect. And you see this. Sometimes the word for elect can just be simply between choosing something. I come down from the pulpit 
and I, I pick up and choose one of the hymnals that are there for my selection. That is the choice of something I do. But you, you see it over and over through Scripture, this word. And Jesus calling the apostles in Luke chapter 6, verse 13. And when they came, he called his disciples and chose. That is, he collected from them twelve whom he named apostles. And Jesus tells the apostles in John chapter 6, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Yet one of you was a son of perdition. Election is a choice of God. Jesus says this in John chapter 13, verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have elected. It's I have chosen. In chapter 15, verse 16, he says the same thing. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. Specific statement that we're told in Ephesians is this, is that we, those that are in Christ, are chosen in Christ. They were chosen in Christ. That is, they were chosen in union with Christ. It says, even as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world before there was a creation, before there was time. We would say this was an eternal choice which eliminates any merit. It eliminates any goodness on my part that God saw that he needed and he needed me on his team. It excludes the idea of that because it was an eternal choice. It also excludes the idea that there's a response from me. It says that God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now, some people will look at this and say, well, actually, the election is not speaking of uh, being chosen for salvation, but it's actually that those that are in Christ are chosen to be holy and blameless. But that's not what the text says. The text says we are chosen in Christ. And the result of that is this, is Holiness. In other words, that when God saves someone, there's an end in mind, and the end in mind is that they would actually be holy. They would be blameless before God. Why would we be blameless? Why would we be holy? Because of ourselves? No, because we're in union with Christ. In fact, you see, in Romans chapter 8, in the golden chain of salvation, we read this in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. That is that we who are chosen in the, by the Father and given to the Son are chosen to be conformed to the image of the Son that we would become holy and blameless. This eternal choice of salvation from the Father results in holiness. That's a clear statement. But Paul doesn't let up. He goes on to say in verse 5, in love, he predestined us. He predestined us for adoption 
as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Predestined, also sometimes translated as foreordained. This is a plan of the Father to choose a people specific for that of adoption. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. That decreed is the same word. It's speaking of something that God does in eternity, that God decides, that God himself chooses. Romans 8 verse 30 again. And those whom he predestined, he also called. That's speaking of the plan of the Father. What, are, what is it that we're, we're predestined for? Well, it says adoption. Adoption is to be brought into the family of God. You continually see this in Scripture, that those that are in Christ are called the children of God. You also see a, a, a contrast to that in Scripture. There's the children of wrath. There's the children of the devil. These are contrast to those that are adopted of God and may be called sons of God. Why is this? Why does this happen? Well, look what he says. According to the purpose of his will. You might find that in some translations, according to his good pleasure. It's according to God's delight. It's God's choice. So do you mean God chooses? I think you would have a very hard time arguing against that if you read the Old Testament, where there's an entire nation of people chosen. And within that entire nation of people chosen, there are only certain people in that nation that were chosen by God that are chosen salvifically. It's very clear that God chose Israel, not because they were more numerous than the other nations, but because God set his love upon them. So does God see, or does he decree, all human history? He just looked down the tunnels of time and see things and see how people would respond, and that's how he knew, or does the text actually tell us God planned this? Let me ask you a question you have to struggle with sometimes, because I know the argument always goes there, and we'll deal with it more and more as we look at these passages, and that is this, as well, what about human free will? Let me ask you this, what about God's free will? Does God have a free will? Is your free will greater than God's free will? The passage tells us that God does this according to the purpose, his good pleasure of his will. So does God have a free will? Does God have a will where he actually knows what he's doing? And does God's will, is it holy? Is it perfect? Is it untainted by sin? And everything that God has decided, is it perfectly pure? Well, if we answer no to that, then we have to question who God is. We have to discount almost all of what the Bible tells us about God. 
He chooses a people according to his will. And look at verse 6. It's to the praise of his glorious grace. God will be praised. So look at, he has blessed us in the beloved. That is, we are blessed in Christ. And that is to God's praise. God will be glorified in the salvation of his people. God is working out his plan perfectly is what we see here in verse 7. When we move into time and history, that gave us the eternal perspective, but now we move into when Christ takes on flesh. In him, this is moving now to the beloved, which is the Son. In him, we have redemption through his blood, which speaks of the Son's sacrifice, which speaks of his shed blood upon the cross. In him, notice what that in him, that is in Christ, we've already been told we've been blessed in Christ, we've been chosen in Christ, and now we see in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption is to be released from slavery, to be released from bondage. It is to be bought. It is for something that has actually taken place by transaction. It's a complete transaction that Christ has accomplished with his shed blood. We have to see that in the text. That what Christ did on the cross for sinners is a complete transaction. Now you see that so clearly in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 2, where it says this in verse 13, And you who were dead in the trespasses and of the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When were the sins of his people put on the cross? When Christ was on the cross. It speaks of a transaction that is complete and has taken place in time upon the cross. It's something that has happened. And this is according to the riches of His grace. God does this in His grace for His people. It's also, we see, according to His wisdom. His grace, verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. This is taking place because of God's perfect wisdom, God's perfect grace. And then not only that, you see this is statement that shows us the whole entire course of history in verse 9 making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. Now you have to hang on to that for a second because what is the mystery of his will? We see the word mystery in Scripture and it you know, sparks our interest, but we're told what the mystery is and the mystery is the church, Jew and Gentile together. In fact, Paul goes on and even says this, 
He says in chapter 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. So what is this mystery? This mystery that, in verse 9, and to bring light to everyone that is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What is the mystery? Is the church. Now you think about this. You go back to where it says this, making known to us the mystery of His will according to the purpose which He set forth in Christ. His mystery which was known in eternity, mystery to us, becomes real in real time. Do we think that God for a second would allow the mystery of His will that would be revealed in time would be made known? He would leave that up to humankind to come about? Or does God order history to a point where His plan is laid out exactly as He has planned? Paul could not have written that because it would not have happened if it was up to man The mystery of his will would not have been known. Gentiles would have not come to Christ because no one would have come to Christ. The mystery of the church would be unknown to us. He goes on to say, and as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So what you see here is God was revealing a plan in time, his plan, the mystery which is the church. But then also this is God's plan is going into the future. So you see the unfolding of God's plan in history coming up to us, and it's going off into the future that God's plan is being worked out. This is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. What is that talking about? Well, if you go back to Colossians, Paul says the same thing there. We read this of the preeminence of Christ in chapter 1, verse 19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So what do we see here? is that not only did God have a plan to reveal His will in the church as the church was formed, but you also see that God is working all things for all things to be united under the headship of Christ. Was that left up to chance? Is that a possibility that that might not happen? Or are we speaking a very definite language of what God does in salvation? That all things are being brought under Christ. It says in verse 11, In Him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now this is saying that we have our inheritance right now. But yet we also know that we haven't quite acquired the possession of it, and you'll see that in verse 14. 
It's the, you have an inheritance now, but yet the fullness of it is to be realized. And when did this take place? It's, well, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. And foreordained by God. And that obtained is passive. And it's also an accomplished reality. It's something that has taken place already. And why? Why why did this happen? Well, it's according to the counsel of his will. It's according to his own good pleasure. It is according to God's own purposes. And we see how this affects us. In verse 13, it's applied by the Spirit. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. Now listen, that's what happens to you. That's what happens to you at some moment in time where you go from not believing in Jesus to believing in Jesus. And that's what you experience. That's what I experience. We experience ourselves making a choice for Christ. But why did we make that choice? Well, we can go back and look at verses 3 through 12. So that it does it, it, it does tell us, and we are, or have to be uh, clear about this, you have to believe in Christ. You must have faith. This is why we we call people to faith. This is why Jesus says, come to me. So you have to believe. Yes, you're elected, and why you believe is because the Father gave you to the Son, and you heard the gospel, and the preaching of the gospel, you responded to the gospel. But why would you respond to the gospel? The gospel is foolishness to the world. So how do you go from being foolish... And rejecting and seeing something that is foolish to now embracing something that is foolish. Because God has done a work in your heart. And notice what it says. We get to the work of the Holy Spirit. When we believe, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And what does it mean to seal? It's oftentimes used for a letter and the wax of a going across a scroll or a letter so it would not be opened. But it it is here, it is to close something, to make it secure, to have a mark upon something, and it is a guarantee that the seal seals it, in fact, and it cannot be broken. You see this? work of the Spirit throughout Scripture, 2 Corinthians 1.22, and who has put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so it's the work of the Spirit to seal our salvation. You see in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, in verse 5, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. We have been sealed by the Spirit. So what do we see? The Father gives the people to His Son. Just as Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. I think in many ways, chapter 
1 of Ephesians is explained in John chapter 6. And we have this wonderful truth of the Spirit described here. The Spirit is the guarantee, just as we read in 2 Corinthians, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And verse 12 says this, that we are also to the praise of His glory. Why did the Father elect you? Why did the Father choose you and give you to the Son? And why were you sealed by the Spirit? To the praise of His glory. Not your glory, but His glory. I think this passage makes it abundantly clear that we are saved by our triune God. That salvation is a work of the triune God. So we have to ask the question then, is it within my power to break all of that of chapter 1 and then lose it? There's a couple points I wrote down to think about. Number one is this. If we were to hold that view that one could be saved, one could be given of the Father, elected of the Father, before the foundations of the world, that you could be in Christ, in union with Christ, that you could have redemption, forgiveness of sins, and you could be sealed with the Spirit, but then lose your salvation. If you hold that view, that means that the Father gave to the Son, they failed to come. The Father failed. You have to hold to this this reality that if you believe that, then the Father failed in His giving. Or, you have to hold to this, the Son failed in His plan to keep those given by the Father. That he didn't offer a, or provide a true redemption and a true forgiveness of sins. So the father failed, or the son failed, or third, the Holy Spirit failed. The father did his job, the son did his job as if they were, as if we could separate their work. But the Spirit didn't quite seal you well enough. So which is it? Which person of our triune God failed? Did the Father fail in giving to the Son the wrong person? Did the Son fail in being able to truly redeem? Or did the Spirit fail in truly sealing a person for eternal security? Another problem, number four, is this, is we are adopted in the text, which is something out of our control, but we're actually able then to annul God's adoption, and adoption in this sense is a legal thing that God has done himself. Number five, our will is able to supersede or overcome God's will. God's will was to save you and keep you and hold you, but your will was greater than God's will. Now, oftentimes people will say, well, hold on, what about free will? Well, what about it? What does the Bible tell us about our will? That it's darkened? 
that we walked in the darkness and iniquity and the trespasses of our sin, that people love darkness. John 8, 44, that your will is to do the will of your father, the devil. We really want to cling to that. So do you, well, you make choices. You made a choice to be here. So yes, in that sense, absolutely. But do you have an autonomous free will? A will apart from God's. That your will's over to your will is able to override God's will. So do you hold, you have to hold to a free will at the expense of God's free will if you hold to an autonomous free will that's outside of God's plan? I don't think the scripture allows for that. Number six is this, redemption that is bought by the blood of Christ, we're able to annul our redemption by our sin or our obstinance to the free grace of Christ. We've been set free, we've been delivered, we've moved from being slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness because of redemption, but not truly redeemed. We cannot say we've been truly redeemed, meaning set free, where we have been bought if we haven't actually been bought. Number seven, the Father failed to see the Son glorified. If I could lose my salvation to the praise of His glorious grace is no longer true. God's glorified in everyone else that makes it to the end, but he's not in me because I lost my salvation. God loses some of his glory. The plan, number eight, the plan the Father had for the fullness of time will not be according to the Father's plan, but actually will become dependent upon people making it happen. His plan for the fullness of time on how history itself will unfold is not according to his plan. If I go to this route of I can lose my salvation because then it's no longer based upon the Father's plan but based upon the contingency of people making it to the end. Number nine, not all things will be united in Christ. Christ lost Some. Some things were outside of Christ's control. He couldn't hold them. His grip wasn't good enough. Number 10, we have not really received an inheritance. By the way, when you receive an inheritance, it's something that's finalized. It's something that is complete. It's something that has taken place. We would have to say that we have not received an inheritance if I could then go and lose my inheritance. Number 11, we're able to break the Spirit's seal. You have to hold that view. That what the Holy Spirit seals on you, you're actually more powerful than the Holy Spirit's ability to keep you. And to seal you for, uh, be a guarantee of that. Which then means the Holy Spirit is no longer the guarantee of that inheritance. So we would need to go and change the language of the Bible where it says the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our 
inheritance to something else. The Holy Spirit's the guarantee of your salvation if, if you make it according to your works. We would have to accept this idea. Number 12 is this, is union with Christ by the Spirit does not change us. You'd have to hold that view. Darkness of mind remains, even with the indwelling Spirit. We would have to say the flesh is stronger than the Spirit. We would have to say that Christ's righteousness that we've been told is imputed to us really actually does not change our hearts and change who we are. Number 13, as you would have to accept this, is the Father is actually in the process of learning. Because He gave you to the Son, the Spirit then sealed you, but then you broke away and you broke that election, that choice of the Father's. And so the Father, even if He's just looking down the tunnels of time, as some people like to say, which means God's still learning, God's still dependent on something, the Father's learning. You can't escape that logic. That at some point the Father's knowledge of all things is dependent upon whether I or you make it to the end. And 14, the 14 point is this, is, and this is probably the most distressing, if it's true that I could lose my salvation, it means this, only my past sins are truly forgiven. That's absolutely frightening, because how good do I have to be to get there? What is it that I could do that could separate me from the love of God? What does Scripture say can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Number 15, it means Christian hope. Paul writes of hope. Here he says in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, it means this Christian hope is not dependent upon God, but rather my behavior and choices. Let me ask you, how many of you want to place your hope in your behavior and your ability to make right choices? In other words, if we concede and say, okay, Hebrews 6, it seems to be saying this, you just zap Christian hope. Because it no longer rides on God's promises, but it now rides on your shoulders. I don't want to take that responsibility. Praise be to God that we don't. Number 16, the Holy Spirit is actually powerless to change you unless you allow it. You think about what Jesus says to Nicodemus, that the Spirit goes where the Spirit goes. Well, the whole that view is that you could actually stop the Spirit from doing His work. Number 17 is this, is that salvation is for my own glory now. Well, if God elected me, God saved me in Christ and the, the Spirit elected me, but now it's on my shoulders to make it to the end. At the end of the day, I get to pat myself on the back for my salvation. At the end of the day, I get to share in a little bit of the glory of my salvation because I made it to the end. 
or 18, human history is on its own sovereign course, if we were to hold that view. The Gentiles were by chance, and the Gentiles chose God by chance. And then 19, ultimately, I have control even over God's electing purposes in salvation. I'm sure there's more. But those are a few points that we would have to accept if we believed that the salvation that was eternally given by the Father in the Son and sealed by the Spirit were to be lost. I don't hold to eternal security. I hope you don't hold to eternal security merely because it's precious to you. I hope you hold to eternal security and are comforted by eternal security because that's what God reveals to us in His Word. This is what our triune God does in our salvation. Our security is in Him. Our hope is in Him. Our comfort is in Him. In His promises to bring it about. And that he will be glorified in it. And that he will not share his glory with none other, but salvation is of the Lord. Because here's the reality. If I could lose my salvation, I would have lost it. And if you could lose your salvation, you would have lost it. The beauty of this passage here is that it's not yours to lose. It's an act of God. And yes, you believe, and yes, you trust, and yes, you are to grow in holiness. And that is the work of the Spirit in your life through the Word. Salvation, through and through, is an act of our triune God. And praise be to Him for it. That's our comfort and hope. Heavenly Father, we thank you.